This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. Muck Delivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with Muck Delivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Because if you don't know your history, you don't know your future. And your future has to be what happened the early days under Matt and Jimmy Murphy without doubt and, and, and tell them that what Jimmy did about planting seeds of it, the, the history that is the most important thing you can do with young players coming to my United tell them what the, their expectation is to realise the expectation this is what for, point for my United is no point for Bolton Wonders or Burry or, or Rochdale it's point for the biggest club in the world No deep dive into the modern history of Manchester United or Sir Alex Ferguson's reign as manager would be complete without talking to this man. Um, I'm, I'm Wayne Barton, as you know. I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by Michael Knighton, the man who once almost took over Manchester United in 1989. And I'm delighted to say that I'm joined with it, um, by Michael today. Um, how are you doing, Michael? I'm very well, thank you, Wayne. And uh, thank you for inviting me for a chat. Absolutely, um, like I said, no um, deep dive, no actual any, not even need to deep dive. Any conversation about United in this period wouldn't be complete without talking to you. Listeners to this show will know that I've um, done a regular podcast with Paddy, um, Paddy Barkley, going back over those early years from 1986 to 1993, 94. Um, really looking at the origins of the Sir Alex Ferguson era, the foundations that he laid for the success. Of course, listeners to the show will know that um, we know Martin Edwards quite well. We are quite, um, I wouldn't say enthusiastic, but complimentary about the work that he did. Um, and he gets a little bit of a bad rap sometimes. But obviously, as a passionate United fan, uh, we know that he uh, generally tried to put the club first. And, you know, there was a a lot of investment and time put into hiring Sir Alex Ferguson, Alex Ferguson as he was then. United struggled in the first three years under Alex's reign as he um, as he saw, um, obviously they had that second place finish, but that was more of a, um, I should say a false hope at the time. It was the last hurrah of the Atkinson era, as I think I put it. Um, but Michael, you came along in 1989, obviously the sort of seeds of buying a football club like Manchester United, um, come much earlier than just a spur of the moment kind of thing. So, first of all, I'd like to ask when the idea of uh, buying a football club first appealed to you, and, and secondly, why Manchester United? 
Well, it's very simple, Wayne. I mean, I, look, I, I've been passionate about the game of football literally from the cradle. Um, you know, my, my family have been involved in the professional game literally from the time it turned professional. Uh, way back at the end of the 19th century, with, through my great-grandfather on my mother's side, Willie Layton. He was a professional footballer, uh, played for the English League, played for Sheffield Wednesday, FA Cup winner, First Division Championship winner. Uh, so I was brought up, really, with stories about great-granddad, with my own grandfather. And, uh, you know, I could play a bit as a kid. came natural to me. As you know, I was a professional myself. Uh, uh, well, I was in a... Let's, let's be clear, I wasn't a professional in the sense I signed professional forms. I was in a, a ground staff boy at Coventry City, straight from school, just the traditional route. So I was immersed in this game, literally from the cradle, and loved it, and only ever dreamed, really, of being a professional footballer, as most kids do if they love that sport. Um, I didn't really have any career to speak of. Uh, I was on at Coventry for a short while when I got seriously injured. So then I went back to school, uh, into teaching, uh, eventually into business. Um, so being a passionate supporter and lover of the game, and I'd made a few bob, luckily. So um, inevitably, I was going to turn my attention to looking more deeply into the ownership of a football club. I'd been researching football for a long time, its commercial aspects, and of course we had the dreadful 70s and 80s with a lot of fan misbehaviour and football hooligans giving the, name a, giving the game a dreadful name. Um, and then of course we had the disasters which we're all familiar with uh, in the 80s, uh, and then of course the huge tragedy of Hillsborough uh, in April, April 15, 1989. Uh, in the very ground where my great-grandfather plied his trade. And I must tell you, Wayne, that was uh, an epiphany moment for me. I thought, I've really got, I really have got to get involved in this. It's got to change. You've got to treat fans properly. You've got to wipe your feet, really, before you go into a football stadium. It should be a family game, family entertainment, in a very safe environment, which clearly, to cage fans behind railings and herd them like cattle uh, was always a recipe for disaster and sadly so tragically and horribly uh, that manifested itself at Hillsborough um, but prior to Hillsborough I'd already been researching the commercial aspects of the professional game uh, and I was hunting for a model to sorry a professional club to to uh, apply the model that I'd been researching uh, and of course, history now will tell you that uh, when I was in four, Manchester United was for sale to a very uh, good friend of mine, Barry Chato, former chairman of Bob Wanderers, who uh, tipped me the wink that Martin Edwards would stop his shareholding. Then it was a no-brainer for me. I thought, well, with the blueprint I've done, what a what what a fantastic opportunity to test the model that I've researched and created, my blueprint. Uh, with a wonderful football club like Manchester United. I mean, it was just a, a dream come true. Um, so that's how it started, Wayne. And I thought, right, 
if Manchester United is for sale, I've got to be the man that uh, buys it. Uh, and that that bid was very well recorded, uh, sadly, by another man who tried to buy Robert Maxwell. Older vote, uh, 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 your older listeners will know all about Robert Maxwell, former owner of Daily Mirror. But younger listeners won't, perhaps. Uh, and that became a huge battle between he and his operation uh, and myself. And there was a lot of that publicity, a lot of negative publicity, uh, which is still available for people to read today, unfortunately. Anyway. But anyway, there we are. So, yes, I always believed, having made a few bob, I'm going to own a football club. Um, and that's how it started, Wayne. It's very interesting for me that you mentioned some of the political aspects there um, because we'll talk about Manchester United obviously on this show but unless you've got a potential undiscovered gold mine then money into a football club is thrown away um, it's rarely a profitable venture we've seen the term billionaires play thing used to extremes these days um, and that's because where Chelsea and Manchester City are involved. Yeah, Manchester City can talk about the um, sort of regeneration of areas in Manchester, but let's be frank, the money that they've put into the club is not going to be seen again for a very, very long time, if, if at all. Um, but in those days, even, United weren't a sure thing, and you talked about the political landscape of football, and we were still in these eddy days of hooliganism, um, Hillsborough at the time and, and the son um, you mentioned Robert Maxwell um, there's also the son who was pouring all that back onto football fans so yes everything that we know now um, about how the son were dreadful and, and what a tragedy it was but in the wake of the moment there was this great division about um, football not having a very clean image and it was meant to be his absolute worst when Hillsborough was there obviously 1990 came around in the World Cup that I would know we're jumping ahead of year but the reason I'm doing that is I'm trying to paint the um, the change there the 1990 World Cup which was you know Gaza's tears and everything changing the public image of the game but we were some way away from that so what was it um, you said about sort of your ambition to change the sort of family picture of the game basically how, how did you propose how did you think that that could be done and um, when you're battling against not only the the perception of the the support but obviously as well a media who were willing to sort of uh, fuel the fire um so to speak well look the game of football at the highest level and and even in those uh, horrible hooligan days of the 70s and 1980s the game of football is the greatest sport on the planet, without exception. It has universal appeal. Because, of course, it, it appeals to uh, the human primeval instincts. It's gladiatorial, it's competitive, it's territorial, it's tribalism, uh, it's uh, physical contact, it's fast, it's quick. It's wonderful. It's instant entertainment for 90 minutes in a controlled environment. What had happened, Wayne, of course, you know, through lack of management and control of the authorities, the FA, Football League, highest authorities, they had failed to control the negative elements of the game, uh, you know, like the rabble, like the the gangs, the hooligans that had harnessed onto... They weren't really football fans. Uh, they were just louts and hooligans who'd harnessed onto this wonderful spectacle. And as I say, I'm, I will just flat back flip back to the April of 89 because that was its nadir that was its um, 
you know, the crystallization point of all this terrible negative image that the game had acquired for itself. Uh, that culminated in the Hillsborough disaster with the tragic loss of 96 wonderful Liverpool fans had gone, gone out for a day to a footy match. Their parents, you know, waving them off, children, and all their fathers or brothers or uncles to learn only that they'd lost their life at a football match. It, it was the catalyst that was going to change the game. And as I sat watching it on TV, as I say, at the Hillsborough ground where my own grandfather plied his trade, I, I knew this was a game-changer for all time, especially on the back of the recent previous horrendous disasters of Bradford and the Hassel Stadium and so on. More importantly, um, you know, yes, of course, the media were always, you know, uh, on the on the back of the image of the game and how negative it was. The Taylor report was critical. We knew that safety was going to be the future. As a passionate football man, I said, this has got to change and I'm going to be part of that change. And the only way you can change things, sadly, in life, in all avenues of life, sadly, is with money. Whether we like that or not, it is a fact. If, if it's a commercial element we're referring to, and to change stadia and make them safe and all-seater and a family arena, you're going to need a lot of cash. Where does that cash come from? Uh, and you're right about the political landscape. Look, in the 60s, 70s and 80s, people that owned football clubs, it was usually your local businessman, the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, the bod that had made a name for himself locally, usually in commerce. He'd made a few bob. And uh, he was, you know, the Rolls Royce driving, the champagne drinking, and the crumbic clad cigar smoking. Typical almost of Louis Edwards, the father of Martin, who was a classic um, uh, figure of what the football club chairman was in those days. Um, it was going to change, Wayne. It had to change. And it being the most popular uh, sport in this country and throughout the world, uh, it, it was almost a, a natural event, a sequence of events that was going to make these stadiums safe. And, of course, the money had to be found, uh, and it was found, uh, to create these magnificent stadiums that we have today at virtually almost every football ground now. Uh, when you look at the safety measures, the health and safety implementations that have been installed, uh, football ground is usually the safest place to be, oddly enough, on a Saturday afternoon these days. Uh, post, uh, sorry, pre-COVID. <laughs> um, so, so the political landscape had to change. It did change, thank God. And it became the truly global sport that it was always going to be because I'm just going to mention one other thing before we move away from 1989 as I say as a as an ex sort of student of the game and as you know as you know my background was in education and teaching and I'd done some research another very important day in 89 was the 5th of November at 6 p.m. 5th of uh, sorry not November 5th of February 1989 was critical uh, of course, a couple of months before April, but the 5th of February 1989, 6pm, was the launch of Sky Television. Mm -hmm. And I must tell you, 
uh, I'd taken the time and trouble to look at this uh, new phenomena, and I must tell you, there was not one person I came across in the football industry, whether they be a chairman, an owner, a director, or an official at the Football Association or at the Football League, as they were then, not one believed in Sky Television. Not one of them. When I interviewed and chatted and said, you know, what about this uh, new broadcasting phenomena? Uh, Rupert Murdoch launched this satellite broadcasting facility. They laughed and sniggered and poo-pooed it and said, oh, that'll never replace terrestrial television, ever. I mean, who on earth is going to be interested in a satellite and you've got to have a squirrel or a dish on the side of your house? This, this will never, never take off. You must be mad, Michael, to believe in it. I swear to you, Wayne, this was the verbal feedback that I received from every single person involved in the football industry. Anyone who reads my bloop, which is actually published in the book that Philip Vine wrote recently. Uh, by the way, that title wasn't mine. I didn't, you know, nothing was mine in that book apart from my diaries that I gave Philip all those years ago and the legal papers, and the hard copy of the blueprint. I knew that was also a game-changer. And this is pre-Hillsborough. Satellite TV, for me, was a, going to be a game-changer. And I was trying to explain to those involved. I said, look, hang on. This is the greatest spectator sport in the world. It's universally attractive. And this means... You can beam it around the world with a massive global reach, live TV. It's going to change the industry forever. And I was ridiculed. I was laughed at. I was called a Walter Mitty. I was called a lunatic. Um, but I knew that the revenue and the sponsorship that uh, once the broadcasting uh, agencies, the terrestrial television would be competing against satellite and vice versa. Y you didn't need to be a visionary. You didn't need to even be clever to understand the product value. And I'm sorry to speak of football as a product for a moment, but I will. The product value was going to go through the roof. And, and anyone interested in commerce, as well as football, could see this. Oddly enough, everyone virtually in the industry that I spoke to didn't see it. Uh, now, the rest is history because everyone knows what Sky did to the game of football and the enormous sums of revenue that suddenly uh, flooded into the industry. Um, uh, most of it coming to the English First Division, as it was, because it was the most exciting and most popular league to watch uh, throughout the world. Uh, and still is today, by the way. It's still, you know, you can keep your... Bundesliga, and you can keep your Syria. Uh, you, you can keep your European leagues. The English Premier League, for, formerly the old First Division, is still the greatest football league in the world. Hence, why all the international stars, the greatest players in the world, want to play in the uh, English Premier League. Um, so, yes, we believe 1989, but that was a key factor. The 5th of February, 6 p.m., the launch of Sky TV. And uh, we all know how they've, that organisation, love them or hate them, they've done a brilliant marketing job to change the image of this great sport. And uh, it now enjoys um, 
let's be honest, a, a, a wonderful image, really, as being... Uh, sadly, it's become a billionaire's game and not a millionaire's game now, you know. Um, most football league clubs are out of the reach of the common god millionaire. You have to be a billionaire now to even consider owning a football club, but you didn't 30, 40 years ago. If you've made a few bob, you've got a good chance of owning a football club. Uh, but that that was a critical point that shouldn't be lost in all this, Wayne, was the advent of Sky TV. You're absolutely right, Michael. And I, I find myself nodding along. If, if anyone's listening to this saying, what, why isn't Wayne talking more? Uh, I'm agreeing with most of what Michael's saying. We're just recording it a little bit differently today, so that means I can't interrupt Michael as often as uh, I would like, but thankfully not as often as I'm sure he would um, prefer um, to, to sort of elaborate on his points, which are just so fascinating. And you are so right. By the way, the book Michael's talking about is called Visionary. It's through uh, Philip Vine and, and Pitch Publishing. It's an absolutely fascinating read um, that goes into this kind of detail, really, um, where with the period what we're talking about. And, and you're absolutely right again about Sky Television coming in and changing everything. What they the, the funny thing was is that United. I've I've written many books on United, and one of the um, one of the, the the common themes about those early years is the catalyst that became Eric Cantona, basically. And, he, and yes, I do strongly believe that he, more than any other player, transformed the football club, but it's true that the mechanics had to be in place for that vehicle to sort of take off. And I think this is what we're talking about, um, what propelled United into that position to be that vehicle. And I, I want to just reframe the conversation to the early days where you you were talking to Martin Edwards about the vision for the club. Obviously, it was going to be a crossover that you would eventually become the owner and Martin would relinquish um, his control of the club to, to yourself. And, and I'm just interested in those early conversations. Obviously, you had different views and you mentioned in some other interviews about Martin not having the same kind of visions as, as you. But there was no doubt in certainly that Martin was a little different from football owners, football club owners, in that he realised that United's attraction was greater than what was being realised. Obviously, then we're talking about the mechanics in in place to to capitalise on that. Um, just interested in those early conversations where you saw United in terms of their standing in the English game and how great you thought the potential was and, and where you thought that potential might lead. Uh, well, look, I've never had a crossword with Martin Edwards, and I was a co-director of his for three years. Ne- never fallen out with Martin, uh, mm-hmm. never had an argument with Martin. There's no question uh, I should be eternally grateful uh, to Martin Edwards for using uh, virtually every idea in my blueprint and uh, making sure it was driven by the commercial team at Old Trafford, and uh, he does deserve credit, uh, uh, together with his co-directors. Um, for 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 being very positive about the ideas and the concepts that he read in that uh, blueprint, uh, so he does deserve full credit for that. Uh, but did Martin see the future of the industry? No, he certainly didn't. Uh, why would he? Uh, he he. There's no question, Martin. You know, he's been criticised by a lot of people being a rugby man rather than a football man and so on. But, um, you know, anyone who can score almost 90% in a, a quiz about Man United um, 
you can tell that he knew his football club inside out. And he did try some commercial initiatives himself. They didn't quite come off. You know, I'm thinking of the basketball venture Mm. and so on. Uh, But look, at the end of the day, if Martin had seen where this club was going to be in a few years' time, and I mean only a few years, he certainly wouldn't have been selling his shares to me for 10 million quid. Uh, you know, which is laughable now when you look at where it was. I'd valued the club even then in 1989 at £150 million, which seems ludicrous when you look back, because when I was buying that football club or made my offer, it had never really made a profit or much of a profit for Mm. the previous 20, 30 years. It had just announced losses in uh, in 1988 of over a million pounds. Uh, yes, the balance sheet was strong enough. The turnover was only just over £7 million. This was in a different land to where it is today. So you've got a loss-making organisation, you've got a team that hasn't won the First Division Championship for, you know, for years, more than 20-odd years, back in the 60s. So for a team of this magnitude, with this fabulous supporter base... It was massively underachieving. It's no good saying, oh, well, um, you know, we're always in the top four or five. Manchester United should be in the top one Mm. constantly. I mean, it really should. That's not unrealistic. Manchester United should be never at the top two. You know, with its um, magnificent supported base, especially now, global, Mm. never mind just local. Um, This is why... It's disappointing for everyone. It's not won anything. Not, well, sorry, it's not won the championship for seven years since 2013, which is a disgrace for a club of its size and history, especially after the Ferguson years. But um, I was introduced to Martin Edwards in '89, but as I say, by my uh, friend uh, Barry Chato, who was a football man, local Manchester businessman, and an excellent, uh, an excellent. An excellent chap is Barry Chato, very fine human being, which is more important than anything. And Barry introduced me to Martin. We met at Old Trafford. We had lunch. Uh, I said, Martin, I'm here. I'm not beating him out of the bush. I'm here to buy Manchester United. Uh, I think I'm the man you need to sell it to, and these are my reasons why. I didn't give him my blueprint then, obviously, because he wouldn't have sold it to me had I given it my blueprint. Uh, but I did tell him that I'd got some, what I believe to be revolutionary ideas, I said I thought I could make it a great commercial success as well as a playing success. I did say I could finish off the development of the ground, especially at the Stretford end, which I know did chime well with Martin because that was his dream too. We got on very well uh, from day one. We did speak the same language on many fronts, but obviously I couldn't give him my blueprint because... um, he would soon realise, why am I selling this for 10 million quid when I've got a young man here and I was only 30, what, 36, 37? Why would I sell it to him? Because he ranks it's worth 150 million quid. Um, we then had several other meetings and we shook hands on the deal for me to buy Manchester United uh, in August uh, at Colloquen uh, Castle, where I lived at the time in, in Scotland. And we shook hands on the stroke of midnight to actually cement the deal. And being two men, you know, ictum dictum pactum, my word is my bond, I knew the deal was done and so did he. Just on the shake of the hand. We were not going to renege. Mm-hmm. Um, so how it turned out in the end, um, 
it's is bittersweet in a way. Uh, biggest mistake of my life, Wayne. I should have just um, taken up my option. I should have completed. But once Martin had offered me a place on the board of directors and he agreed to implement my blueprint, I didn't really need to own it. I just wanted to turn it into the greatest brand in the sporting world, which is what's happened. Uh, I played my little part in that. Uh, not all credit to me, of course it's not, but I played my little part in that. And I had three magnificent years at the greatest football club in the world. And uh, it was a thrill, a delight and a privilege. Um, so that, that, that's, that's basically what happened. A series of negotiations, we shook hands, we did the deal. I altered my contract to buy it, gave him the option to purchase back, and I went on the board as a director. As you know, when I arrived, Alex Ferguson's position was incredibly precarious. Uh, a lot of the fans wanted Alex to go. Uh, we all remember the banners and the chants mm. in 1989. You know, Tara Fergie. It's been three years and it's still crap. You can do it in Scotland, but you can't do it in England. I mean, that was the environment I came into, and I was under enormous pressure as the chairman-elect for those uh, six, two days. The media thought the first thing I'd do was get rid of Alex Ferguson. And uh, I had to say at my very first press conference, which I did, Wayne, Alex Ferguson's job is safe. Who am I, as a young whippersnapper, 37-year-old, who am I to challenge the judgment and the football now of a man that broke the mould of Scottish football between the domination of Glasgow Rangers and Celtic with his Aberdeen success, an unfashionable club, Northern Aberdeen. You know, what Alex Ferguson achieved there was miraculous. So this man could manage. I mean, no question about that. Um... Okay, forget St Mirren, but what he did at Aberdeen was absolutely sensational. And he did break the mould of Scottish football. So who was I? And I'd done a bit of research on Alex. I knew that he was changing the, the scouting structure, the schoolboy structure, the youth policies. He was doing a lot of work behind the scenes. It just wasn't coming together on the, uh, with the first team in his early years and, and where he needed to be. But I gave him 150%. Um, backing from day one what I did say to him and it's uh, well recorded I said this man needs to give me a trophy every single year it's silverware that's why I'm here that's why the fans come every week to be entertained and to see their team win trophies Alex Ferguson never let me down because in the three years I was there Wayne we won the FA Cup the Football League Cup even the FA Youth Cup we won the European Cup Winners Cup we won the Super Cup the European Super Cup joint holders of the Charity Shield. I was only there for three years. That man never let me down. Then, of course, he went on to, well, we all know what he achieved. My God, did he deliver in spades. So the great Sir Alex Ferguson deserves the mantle of the greatest manager. His achievements will never be rivaled in my lifetime, if ever. Anyway, there we are. No, I fully agree. I'm, I'm inclined to, you know, obviously, I'm a United fan, so I'm inclined to sort of argue that um, point about Sir Alex being the greatest. And it is interesting because, um, especially hearing you say that, because someone, um, like I said, we've been doing this podcast series. Um, whenever I've sort of put this point forward about any conversation I've had with Martin Edwards, 
I've always tried to emphasise the idea that Martin had invested this time into him, and I'm inclined to believe him um, when he says that he didn't have any thoughts of sacking um, Alex, that they'd invested this time in restructuring the youth system. You mentioned Louis Edwards earlier, and I'm, I'm sure that um, Martin was keen to have that sort of relationship that Busby had with um, with his own father. and it's interesting to hear you so emphatic about this because obviously you didn't have those ties, you didn't have that sort of connection or investment. I'm talking in terms of like the three years of time that they put into this. So when the fans are turning on him, it's it's so compelling to hear that you've done your own research and that you were you were going to be backing him. Um, you mentioned the hundred and fifty percent sort of theoretical backing of him and, and sort of getting behind him, but obviously that was backed up financially over that summer and I'm interested to know how big a part you played in that because Ferguson had gone on record as saying oh this isn't you know my money we've got to be tight with the purse strings for the first few years and like you mentioned there was they weren't um they weren't turning over huge amounts that meant that they were colossally um muscling other clubs out for players I mean Famously, they were muscled out for by Spurs for for Paul Gascoigne. They'd been um, beaten by Liverpool for John Barnes. Trevor Stephen went to Rangers because United couldn't compete with their money. But United in the summer of nineteen eighty nine, they they did this massive splurge, which in a roundabout way put for, um, further pressure on Ferguson. Um, you know, Paul Ince, Gary Pallister, Danny Wallace, uh, those kind of players coming in. Um, was that something that you, you were heavily involved in, the, the sort of procurement of those players? <coughs> what I'm going to do, Wayne, is just correct you slightly about Martin Edwards and the future of Alex Ferguson when I was there. Uh, now, this is absolutely the truth. Uh, Alex Ferguson's job was never on the table at a board meeting. That is a fact. There might have been the odd comment here and there when things were really going uh, badly on the, uh, with the first team and the fans were really chanting week after week for Alex's head. But Martin will never admit this, but this is the truth, and I don't tell lies, I'm telling you the truth. Uh, at Christmas time, 89, just before New Year of 90, and we all know the Nottingham Forest, I think it was, was it uh, January the 7th, uh, Sunday, mm. the 1-0 away win, Mark Robin scored in the FA Cup. Uh, there is no question... Uh, because at the previous game, in the at half time, Martin sidled up to me and whispered in my ear, "If we lose today, Michael, we must be talking about you know what." And I didn't turn around. I was eating my sandwich. It was half time, and I just whispered back, "Talking about what, Martin? The manager." So had we lost that league match on the Saturday, uh, I do think Alex's job would have been more than on the line. I think the next board meeting we would have uh, had a vote whether he remained in post or not. That is my honest view. 
Uh, and that conversation is on a record in that book that, that was written by Philip Vine because it's a true story. So Martin had, I think, reached the point where he was looking at Alex's position. He's never admitted that on record, and why would he? It might have just been a fleeting moment for that half-time. Uh, we didn't have a board meeting anyway. It was a boring nil-nil draw on that league match. We then went to Nottingham Forest in the FA Cup. We uh, were lucky to win, but we did win 1-0. Forest were the better team on the day. Hmm. Mark Robbins, as we all know, saved the day with a 1-0 victory. I turned around and I said to my fellow directors, that's it, we'll win the FA Cup in 1990. We will win it. And of course we did. Uh, but there's no question that Alex's job was on the table if we had lost that league game on that previous Saturday. Uh, that is my interpretation. Uh, I'm telling you the truth. That is what happened. Martin will probably never even remember that conversation, but I do, because it was very pertinent and it was very relevant. And I thought, wow, uh, I think Martin's reached the end of the road. Weeks if we lose today, I think his job's on the line. Obviously, he had tremendous support in the boardroom, especially from Bobby Charlton and uh, and others. But look, Martin was in control. Uh, he was a majority shareholder, and if Martin had made his mind up uh, that he was to go, Alex would have gone. Uh, that's how it was. Uh, thank God for Mark Robbins' goal against Nottingham Forest. And I know a lot of media speculation was around at the time that that goal and that match did save Alex's job. Well, the truth of the matter, it, it probably did. <laughs> you know, so let's clear that one up. It probably did. There's no one at Old Trafford now or then, if you spoke to them, whether it be Bobby or Michael Ellison or any of the directors then who were still with us, they would all say that wasn't the case. Well, it was. I'm telling you, it was. Uh, but thank God, you know, um, I would have voted against sacking Alex Ferguson had it been tabled at a board meeting. Had we lost against Nottingham Forest, I would have voted against sacking the man because I believed in what he was doing structurally and I knew it was on time. To come back to your question, was I involved uh, with those players? It is also a true story. and I'd only been there uh, seven days and I was... Uh, I got to the club on a match day and Martin said, oh, Alex wants to wear with you, Alex wants to wear with you. Uh, <coughs> so I tunneled off down to a little room uh, down the corridor. Uh, Martin uh, was with me in the room, was Alex waiting for me. And Alex said, Michael, I need to buy Gary Pallister. Uh, chairman, I was chairman-elect, Martin was still the chairman, I was just chairman-elect but we'd signed the option agreement for me to buy the club. Mm. And so it was effectively my decision. Martin Edwards knew that uh, Alex wanted to buy Gary Pallister, uh, complete on the Paul Ince deal, uh, of course the Danny Wallace deal. And I said to Alex Ferguson, Alex, just go and do the deal. Phone Middlesbrough up today. I don't care what it costs. I know Gary Pallister, tremendous young prospect. 
We need a centre-back next to Steve Bruce. Steve can stop him playing. We need a centre-back, six foot four, who can win everything in the air, is quick. In fact, he's lightning for his height. Hmm. And can play and pass. Without Pallister, we're not going to win anything. Alex looked at me bemused. I think his chin fell to the floor. Because I said, I'm going to shake the tree. Go and buy him. I don't care what it costs. Break the British record. Those are my exact words. Martin looked agog. Martin obviously thought, well, he's spending his money, or under his jurisdiction, be it on his head, he's spending the club's money. And uh, he's going to own the club in the next uh, few weeks once the once the due diligence had been completed, that option agreement could be finalised. So, uh, yes, I did sanction the purchase of Gary Pallister. I said go and make sure you complete on the Paulins deal. And let's be honest, those two, one, the midfield master in Ince, the tremendous uh, ability of Pallister, yes, he took six or seven games to settle in, uh, most players do at Old Trafford. Uh, but what he became a mainstay of the great Ferguson years. So Ince, you know, the general, the master in midfield, and uh, Pallister. I sanctioned those those transfers. And Alex uh, said, well, Martin's not prepared to go, but 1.8 million. I know this, this is chicken feed now, when you look at the price of Sancho and God knows what. Uh, but at the time, it was a huge deal. Martin wouldn't go a penny above 1.8 million to buy Pallister. I said, go and break the British record. We did. And Alex went. They wanted two, three million, which was the British record at the time and the biggest football transfer ever. And we purchased Gary Pallister. Yes, that was Michael Knighton's uh, doing. Uh, I can remember that conversation. I'm sure Alex can. I don't think Martin Edwards would want to remember it, but it's true. I had to show Wayne that I will put the club's money and my own money where my mouth is. I wasn't just a young kid coming along saying, uh, well, I'll pay my overdraft off first, or I need to pay myself dividends. I was there to prove I was a football man first and a businessman second. And I had to give Alex Ferguson the clout and the confidence in me to know I would back him to the hilt. If he wanted a player and said we need him, I had to say, as the chairman-elect, I had to say, well, yes, let's go and get him. Let's stop pussyfooting about. Go and buy this player. Pay what it costs. Just get him. Bearing in mind, I was a bit of a player myself. I knew all about Pallister. I'd seen Pallister play. I knew that Alex Ferguson was right in his judgment. I think that's the difference with what's happening today. <coughs> Excuse me. You've got a pair of investment bankers in Ed Woodward mm. and Judd. You know, they're doing the transfer deals. Are they sourcing play? I mean, goodness me. You've got to look at the executive team. It's a shambles what's going on with player recruitment at the moment. At this, at this, the greatest football club in the world who can afford any player in the world. And they can. You know, they've got a £27 million plus turnover. They've got an EBITDA of £186 million last year. EBITDA, by the way, is just earnings before interest, tax, mm. depreciation and amortisation. That's what EBITDA means. You know, with that sort of money, with that sort of financial clout, there isn't a player in the world you can't buy. But let's just go and do it. 
you've got to have the confidence in the people selecting the players that they're right for the football club, they're right for the squad, they're right for the manager, they're right for the team. But if you put the right people in place, which I don't believe they have at Manchester United at the moment, if you put the right people in place, then you reap the harvest of sowing those perfect seeds. Anyway, that's my view. That's my view, uh, Wayne. That's um, it's so fascinating to me, the, the sort of mechanics behind the, the Palliser deal. And it's interesting because um, I mentioned Eric Cantona earlier as the catalyst, and yes, obviously I believe that, but a lot of the players that I've talked to from that time uh, will go on record as saying Gary Pallister was the um, the significant signing when it came. Because I remember you mentioned the Super Cup and the European Cup Winners Cup. United, that squad of players felt that they were the best in the country, and they probably were. Um, they were unfortunate against Leeds um, in '92, but they were the best team at that time, and many of them credit um, Gary Pallister um, with making that big change, really, taking them from um, a team that would get bullied by the likes of Wimbledon to a team that could uh, stand up for itself um, I will. I do want to pick your brains on some of the modern aspects of football, you mentioned um, the shambles that the club is at the moment I do want to sort of pick your brains with a couple of that but it would be remiss of me to not um, mention the 1989 opening day of the season against Arsenal, obviously you mentioned, um, and I'm only saying this because you mentioned it, the Walter Mitty kind of thing and when people look back at your um, not the three years but they look back at 1989 and the fact that um, you you didn't manage to get complete control of the club for the decisions and the sort of the path that you've already mentioned earlier on and people look back on that opening day in 1989 and they look at it as kind of like a circus Um, obviously anyone who reads deeper than the surface or listens to the way that you talk know that it was very serious there was a lot of great intention behind there you knew what you were doing and everything like that I don't think anybody could question that um, but obviously the way that that, that opening day in 1989 has gone down in history um, is kind of bizarre I wonder what your recollections of it are now do you regret doing that is it a fun memory that you have Listen, Wayne, if I was doing it again, I'd do it again, do it again tomorrow. <laughs> Listen, th- th- there was um, calculated logic about my cameo appearance on that day. We got the visiting champions, Arsenal. Uh, here's this young kid, he's 37. Uh, he, he reckoned he could play a bit. I wanted to show the fans. I, I'm not just here at Old Trafford as a businessman to line my pockets or to rip your club off for myself uh, and to enrich myself, I wanted to show them. uh, And, you know, you look at those, the smiles on the faces, the laughs, the grins, the cheers. I'm I'm delighted they actually thought they'd signed a new player. It it was a calculated decision. Although it was spontaneous on the day, I thought, I'll show these people who I am. I'll show them that I'm a football man first and a businessman second and when I juggled that ball from the halfway line to the Stretford end it could only be the Stretford end and smashed it into the empty net I knew in that one act that they would say well you can say what you like he is a football man and you for those who weren't there let me tell you the division between the terraces and the boardroom was cavernous it was a huge chasm. They hated the board. 
despite the likes of Bobby being on there, Martin Edwards was incredibly unpopular. Uh, he was seen as an ogre. He was seen as not a football man. And the fans wanted rid of the board. Not an uncommon phenomenon in football, we all know. But let me tell you, my intention on that day was to bridge that gap between the terraces and the boardroom, to show them that I am different, to show them that not only am I wearing a kit, in my kit bag I've got a range of ideas to give them what they want, which is just to see entertaining football and silverware and success. And from the day that I ran on that pitch, I don't give tuppence what any journalist says that it was a circus act or what any critic might say. Actually, it was very well received on the day at the time from most media. Yes, they thought it was an author. Well, of course it was. It was meant to be. I wasn't your normal chairman. I was an ex-school teacher, made a few bob in property, and I was going to turn Manchester United into the club it should be, the greatest in the world. Anyone who doesn't believe that and says, I'm just saying it now, well, read my blueprint. It's all in there, and I'd written that uh, a year uh, before I even got involved with Manchester United. So the raison d'etre for me running onto that pitch that day and juggling the ball and smashing it in the net uh, was the antithesis of Walter Mitty. It was the introduction of a young man uh, with bright ideas uh, who wanted to show the fans that I was one of them. I'm a working-class boy. I've stood on terraces at Hillsborough, the baseball ground. Of course, Derby County is where I'm from, Derbyshire. Um, I wanted to show them I was really one of them, a football fan first, a businessman second. You know it worked because it was well-received. It was only Robert Maxwell, to mention that ogre again, a man who was obviously in serious financial trouble himself in 89, I was wealthier than he was, truth be told, in 1989, <coughs> because he was in serious financial trouble, and that's why he mysteriously fell from his yacht a few years later in, uh, in 1992, when he mysteriously disappeared, 5th of November, whatever it was, bonfire night, some say he jumped, some say he was pushed, who knows. But he was exposed as a massive fraudster, and yet he was responsible for creating the Walter Mitty image, he and his cohorts and the Daily Mail newspaper. Having said that, I've made friends with a lot of those uh, journalists now. And 30 years on, uh, no, I, I think most people who were there on the day, Wayne, look back at that time fondly, because it was different, it was an orthodox. And I was only, as well as my reasoning for doing it, was logical and real... I was only really doing what every single football fan in the world, whether they be five or 95, really would love to do. That's all I was doing. I was fulfilling their dream. I had the opportunity to do it. I had my reasons for doing it. And wild horses, once I'd made my mind up on the day to do it, wild horses wouldn't have stopped me doing it. And even today... Not that I've got four and a half billion pound in my back pocket to buy Old Trafford now, because that's what it would cost. But even 
if I bought the club today, I would do exactly the same thing. I'm old and doddery now and a great OAP. But trust me, Wayne, I can still do the keepy-uppies. <laughs> and I'd be out there saying, I'm back, here I am. And I reckon I could still smash it in the Stretford end net. So, no, I don't regret it. I love it. It was uh, a day I'll never forget. It gave a lot of people happiness. And from that day on, the club never looked back off the field and on it. And I defy anyone to belie that statistic. We went on. Uh, even before I left, the turnover went from 7 million to 85 million. It's now 627 million plus. Mm. It's uh, massively profitable. Uh, year in, year out, it's uh, rated as the greatest brand in the world from a sporting perspective. And uh, it's slipped back now because of the shambles that uh, is going on. Something is wrong at Old Trafford. They need a shake-up. And if I owned it today, I'd be looking carefully at my executive team. I would be looking at whether it's correct to have a chartered accountant and an ex-investment banker to run my club uh, because he wouldn't be my man. No disrespect to Mr. Woodward. I don't know the man. I've never met uh, Ed Woodward. I'm sure he's a wonderful human being, a very nice man. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not personally attacking the man. I'm just saying that he wouldn't be my executive vice chairman. I would never appoint a chartered accountant as my uh, the chap that's running my football club. He certainly wouldn't be my man. I'd get a football man with brains uh, and they're rare creatures football men with brains but they do exist I'd put Ferguson or Paul Scholes or someone from class of 92 as head of football recruitment tried and trusted tried and trusted uh, ambassador who, re who I knew knows a footballer when he sees one I'd have a shrewd shrewd hard nosed businessman doing the transfer deals I wouldn't put a pair of chartered accountants and ex-investment bankers like Matt Judd and Ed Woodward to talk to agents. You know, the scourge of the industry still to this day, football agents. My God, I could, I, I could talk for hours about what I do with football agents. And I must tell you, I wrote a letter to uh, the FA way back in 90... Well, way back in, uh, yes, 91, 92 telling the industry uh, sorry, asking the industry to say they've got to sort these ex-second-hand car salesmen out and these ex-rogues who become football agents, they've tried to get their act together now, the licensing them, the FIFA agents, but they're still the scourge of the industry, they, they cause a lot of trouble. A footballer needs representation yes, this is where a chartered accountant can come in uh, to represent a, a player with his personal terms and how he must manage his income uh, or a solicitor and I recommended that all agents should be a fully qualified solicitor or a fully qualified chartered accountant uh, with exemplary reputations that was not taken up by the football authorities and hence we've got the mess the football agency industry is today, well it's not a mess it's just incredibly lucrative for a bunch of very questionable people, I have to say. Oh, this is, this is incredibly fascinating. I've got like about five questions there that you just answered, like you know about the, you know the influence of the agents and 
and things like that. But one thing I want to get onto before I, I do concentrate a couple of direct questions about the Glazers. Um, you talked earlier about um, Sky Sports and the difference that they made, and that's undeniable. One thing I'm interested in is a thing that's always been on my mind, um, and I'd love to put the point to you about it. Football today, especially this season and the back end of last, se- last season, there was a lot of talk about the pay-per-view model. And in a way, this goes right back to the 80s with that big five or big six breakaway that they were talking about just before you... Um, this was the eight, mid-80s, wasn't it? 83, 84, 85, 86, the television strike where they were negotiating the new deals to actually broadcast more games on, on television and the big six were sort of like United, Liverpool, Everton, Arsenal, Spurs. And um, the idea, effectively, that United has a social or sporting responsibility to be part of the bigger football pyramid, but does have this commercial potential that simply dwarfs everyone else. You know, even United, compared to Liverpool's viewing figures, and I'm talking like now, with United being as bad as they are, United's viewing figures are just astronomical compared to what you would expect from a team like Liverpool. But obviously these are teams with their own resources who do their own things. But I do wonder about the implication of clubs like City and Chelsea who try to take advantage of their own position within that. So the question I'm making, in a, so the point I'm making and the question I'm putting to you in a long-winded way is do you ever think there'll, there'll come a day where, I, I know there's MUTV and you could say it's part of that, but I do think the party line aside, MUTV serves its purpose. Do you ever think that there'll come a day where United begin the process of negotiating their own broadcasting deals away from... Um, away from the rest of the Premier League because, or, or the rest of English football really because I think that in a way is the um, the biggest carrot for, for a club like United that's, that's sort of untapped revenue Well let me answer you this way Wayne, the reason I left Old Trafford, which was completely my own decision, it was a conscious decision because the negotiations, uh, you know the big five or six were at all always talked about you know TV only wants to watch the big five or six, and uh, we, we should have more of the pie than everyone else, etc., etc. The reason I left the glamorous portals of Old Trafford for the gusty corridors of a northern outpost of Brunton Park, who were actually who finished 92nd in the Football League, and the only reason Carlisle United hadn't been relegated was because uh, Aldershot had gone bankrupt into liquidation. So <clears throat> the reason I left Old Trafford was I didn't like the noises I was hearing. You know, with, from your Everton's and your Liverpool's and your Tottenham's and your Manchester United's. I, I, I said, hang on, you know, what about the other 72 clubs? You know, what about the rump of the industry? Because this is football, this is the pyramid. These are very valuable community assets. This is a people's game. It always has been a people's game. It's 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 not you know, it, it's not just for the big five or six. This is the romance of the industry. Is that in theory, a non-league club could get in the FA Cup final. In theory, mm. in theory, a let's forget the Premier League for a moment, let's imagine it was still the old four divisions, first, second, third, fourth. The romance of the industry is that a fourth division club could win the FA Cup and teach the big boys a lesson. The whole concept and the whole romance of the industry was being 
packaged and questioned in a way that did not fit with my view of the football industry per se. And the reason I left Old Trafford, look, I could still be there today. I could have stayed and enjoyed the privilege and the, you know, the, 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 the pride and the puffed up peacockism that you often see when, you know, I could travel the world as director of Manchester United with my blazer and my tie and drinking champagne and eating my prawn sandwiches. You know, <coughs> that's not what football's about. Football is about being the people's sport on a Saturday afternoon, as it used to be, mm. or on a Wednesday evening, as it used to be. It was the release for 90 minutes. You can forget your troubles, your domestic troubles, your commercial troubles. Forget your life for 90 minutes. Let's go and support your team. And these big five clubs, I was the director of one of them, were making noises I didn't like. They made them again recently and, thank God, kicked into touch again. Look, football is about the pyramid in this country. It is about supporting your team. It, I'm very saddened that it's just now a billionaire's game and, you know, some players are earning five, £600,000 a week and, you know, all right, they've just put a package together to save the rump of the industry and the 72 clubs and the non-league clubs. But, you know, this should have been done at the outbreak of COVID. Whenever that pyramid has put at risk, you need the big boys. But, yes, the glamour clubs but they do have a responsibility. They do have an agenda which should be always to protect the pyramid and always protect the dreams. Uh, you mentioned the phrase Walter Mitty, who, of course, was the fictional dreamer of all time. Well, do you know, Michael Knighton's a dreamer because the football industry is about dreams. And if, you, if you're not a dreamer, don't go into the football industry. You've got to believe that your club can reach for the stars because that's the magic of it all. That is the romance of it all. That is what the game is about. And I think most fans, if they're fair-minded and uh, if they're true football fans, they, they don't want to see the pyramid destroyed. Uh, they don't want to lose the their position at the top of the pyramid and at the apex of course they don't they, they they want to stay top dog if you're a Man United supporter or a Chelsea or a Liverpool or a Tottenham Hotspur of course you want to stay there but you know secretly you love the challenge and you love to swan about in the FA Cup and go to the non-league or go to the third division or second division team and, and show who you are to destroy that you lose the whole kernel and the whole focal point of this wonderful, wonderful sport. It's about dreams. It's about ambition. It's about one day getting your Port Vales or your Carlisle Uniteds or your Accrington Stanleys up there to join the big boys. That's what it's about. Mm. Becoming impossible now, Wayne, with all the money that swirls about at the top level. But, but no, um, uh, disgraceful that the big five could ever think that it is just about money and nothing else and it would be a wrong move to charge for, for, for Manchester United to go out on a limb and say the world wants to watch us we'll negotiate our own rights if they do it's the beginning of the end 
because you're beginning to fragment the 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 you're no longer a collegiate source you're no longer the pyramid you're just an individual entity for yourself by yourself yes let's have all the money wow you've destroyed you've destroyed what's precious about this wonderful sport so i hope it never happens wayne um i don't think it will happen in my lifetime uh, but yes, a chartered accountant like Edward Ward and Matt Judge, economists, he's got a degree in economics from Bristol. Yeah, these people are stupid enough, egotistically enough. Some owners are commercially minded that way. They're not football people if they want to do that. They're just what they are. Money-grabbing people that I don't want any part of. Let me um, jump in there and ask you about this, Michael, because um, you make it in such a great point. And there's no one who's United persuasion of United persuasion who's listening to this who could disagree with what you're saying. And um, you talked about money swilling at the top and, and non-sporting people being involved. Edward Wood's involvement at United is um, obviously was involved in brokering the takeover and negotiating that and then as soon as David Gill and Sir Alex Ferguson were out of the door he assumed this position of power which is frankly ludicrous and yes the decisions that have been made in the meantime are just frankly ridiculous but um, I, I just want to pick your brains on the, the Glazers as bad owners um, in a way are they doing what was expected in a way that United got to this sort of level of financial power that someone was always going to come in and, and do this to them. Or, I mean, I, I've been one person sort of like whenever a, a club like Portsmouth, for example, they were in a, a great position and then someone took advantage of them and they've been left for ruin, basically. It's only United's commercial power that has stopped them from being ruined. I try and put it into the perspective of the fact they've had over a billion pounds drained from them um, just interested from your point of view um, this is part of something that you helped create obviously it must be sad for you to see them um, taken advantage of in the way that they have been but do you think that because of the path that they were on that it was always going to be inevitable that an owner like the Glazers would come along and, and do this to them well sadly yes and I, I, I feel terribly guilty sometimes because my blueprint was all about um, exploiting the commercial potential of this great and wonderful sport. But I have to tell you, in that blueprint, if anyone takes the time to read it, I say the motivation of uh, my tenets and ideas in that blueprint was to create profits in order for the football club to go out and buy any player in the world, bar none, because they'd have the funds to do it. And... In other words, my blueprint was to ensure success on the field of play and then you create a very positive commercial circle. Fans want to see success. They want to see entertainment. They want thrills. They want excitement. That's what they pay their money for. But they want success. And the only way you can do that, uh, or the only way you could do it then, back in 89 and the early 90s, was if you were generating funds. There were very few people although I did predict, predict one day sovereign funds sovereign fund is a fund managed by a government or a royal family as in the Middle East 
with with the Qataris and mm. with, with with the uh, royal family that really own Manchester City. Uh, they are billionaires, and uh, they were always going to plough billions. But you know, uh, I do regret how this is turned. It's just turned into a money fest uh, at the expense of everything else. And you mentioned Woodward. You mentioned the Glaziers. Look, the Glaziers are distant owners. That uh, they, they, I mean, for goodness' sake, you know, you've got Woodward and Matt Judge. They they spend most of their time in Mayfair in London. Mm. You know, the most expensive real estate area on the planet. They've got their offices there. Okay, they they flit up to the Manu training complex now and again. Why do you need offices in Mayfair? The argument is from these ex-investment bankers, oh, well, you know, we need the prestige. Uh, when you're inviting uh, big companies along, we need to be in a flashy, cavernous office in Mayfair. Rubbish. And then, of course... There are those supporters of Edward, uh, uh, sorry, of uh, Ed- Edward uh, Woodward, who give him credit for cementing certain commercial partnerships and sponsorships. This is nonsense. Mm. It's nothing to do with Woodward. You can have a monkey uh, wanting sponsorship partnerships with Old Trafford and Manchester United. For goodness sakes, the greatest sporting brand in the world. You've got people queuing up to do the deals. You don't need a man like Woodward chartered accountant to do the deal you you know you need a proper football man with brains uh, to make sure you are getting the very best of these commercial deals but I know that I don't know whether Woodward lays claim to these deals himself or the Glaziers bestow uh, congratulations upon him for doing this but yes you know Almost by default, he was appointed by the Glaziers because he was uh, an accountant, chartered accountant, what, with KPMG or someone like that. Um, And he landed himself a £4 million salary uh, for running the greatest football club in the world. Yes, he's done very nicely for himself. Thank you very much. Who wouldn't want to earn £4 million for running Man United and having a cabinet's office in Mayfair? I mean, it's laughable what's going on. It's totally laughable. And I'm angry about it. You don't need to have a fancy office down in Mayfair when you've got Old Trafford. You know, let Mohammed come to the mountain. You know, it's, it's just unbelievable what's going on. The wrong executive team is in place. The Glaziers are the people that own and manage the, or control the club. And they are the organ grinders which are controlling the monkeys. It's about time they stepped in and either sold the place to proper people who are prepared to put Manchester United back on top of the tree where it should be, or they should appoint the right football people uh, who, are with, who are suitably qualified to be running this magnificent football club. So, yeah, I'm, I'm angry about it. and uh, These are my opinions, and I'm entitled to them. Um, what possessed them to put an investment pair of investment bankers to run the football club, I've no idea, uh, other than to protect their own debt pile or manage their own debt structuring. Yes, you do need an investment banker for that, and a very shrewd one. Uh, well, they've got a pair. I mean, Matt Judge, I'm sure he's incredibly competent as, uh, as an investment banker. 
and I'm sure Ed Woodward is a an excellent chartered accountant. But that doesn't mean they're brilliant football people who know how to manage Manchester United. It's not an equation I I can put together. It's two and two that makes a hundred for me. No, you're absolutely right. I just find myself agreeing with everything that you say and it's not funny, is it? It's absolutely um, horrendous what's happened to United and I do want to repeat that. I've said it before. Um, wherever I can really is that, you know, if if any other club had had the same amount of money taken out of them as what United have had, we're talking about institutions like Arsenal and Liverpool that would have been out of business. Um, it's just incredible, really. Um, the last question I want to ask you, Michael, I'm, I'm not going to... Obviously, you had this incredible blueprint um, for success for United in the, in the late 80s and early 90s, and like I said, so much of it was um, implemented at the club and directly responsible for, for some of that growth as well, even if you don't want to sort of say that. I'll, I'm happy to say that for you. And I do, again, want to recommend um, people read that book, Visionary. Um, it's just just really an incredible um, story of really how, how United, um, this modern United were founded, um, in, in, in the good aspects of it anyway. Um, I wouldn't... I'd be interested to know, firstly, if you do have a blueprint for how United could be saved from this position, not to give anything away within it, but I know that I have read some interviews about um, some suggestions that you might have an effective model. Um, I know that you've talked as well about fan representation on the board. So not really um, the finer points of the details I want to ask, but more the dreamer of Michael Knighton. Um, how realistic do you think it could be? that fan representation could be on the board and, and that United can get into a position of health that you know obviously begins with the removal of um, Woodward and Judge from their positions. Obviously, you have to start the journey, don't you? You have to have some dialogue between the owners and the fans where they've been notoriously fo- uh, poor for that for 15 years. Um, you, obviously, I think you've also spoke about a sporting director and a director of football. Do you think that... Um, well, firstly, do you have a, a sort of an idea, of like a, a modern blueprint, and and secondly, do you think it's reasonable it could be implemented in, in let's say, the sort of medium to long term, like f- three to five years at United? Well, absolutely. I have written a second blueprint, which I must tell you, Wayne, is more revolutionary than the first one I wrote. Uh, in my dotage, I've had little. Uh, I've always been busy, uh, but because of my passion for the game. Uh, yeah, I've written a, a second football blueprint of commercial ideas and what should be happening. Uh, you'll be delighted to know I can reveal that it, it certainly doesn't involve the breakup or breakaway uh, of the wonderful pyramid. On the contrary, it, it enhances it. And the reason I say it's more revolutionary, this blueprint, because in, back in 1989, all I, I was hearing, even from the board, oh, Michael, we've done everything, we've tried everything, you can't increase the revenue anymore, you can't do this. Uh, and I was so determined to prove everyone wrong, which, 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 which as you rightly say, I, I did. There are still things today, in this wonderful digital world, this cultural shift we're all living through, where everything is now digital, everything is now up there on the cloud, there are still so many commercial initiatives that even big clubs are not doing, Manchester United in particular. I'm astonished. You know, this is why I question the likes of Woodward. If he really was a football man, if he really was, and I have, uh, I assume he is a, 
uh, an outstanding chartered accountant. He must be a good investment banker, as Matt Judge. But, you know, they're still not doing so many things that would, again, shift them up to another plane and bring them even more revenue, so long as that revenue was there for the benefit of the field of play, the player pool, uh, for the benefit of the fans. Because you mentioned fans that are on the board. Of course they should be on the board. Without the fans, football doesn't really exist. Look, for the last 10 months, we've watched this, this wretched COVID virus. We've watched the games being played without fans. I mean, OK, we watch it because we love the game. It's just completely different. The fans are the key to this sport. Whether the powers that be like it or not, they just are. And we all like to watch it in our armchair as well, because you get the immediate replays, we get the commentary, uh, and we see things that we wouldn't when it's live. But nothing's like going to a live football game, especially if it's a thriller and it's, it, it, you know, you're living the passion, you're living the tribalism, you're living the territorial, gladiatorial aspects. Nothing can ever replace that. And so the fans should have representation on every single uh, football club board, especially, look, every football club is a, is a key community asset. It is. It shouldn't be the plaything of a billionaire. It shouldn't be the plaything, or well, not the plaything, if you like, the, the cash cow vehicle of distant owners, which is what Manchester United seems to have turned out to be. I think the Glaziers, well, I think they've made a couple of appearances in 15 years. Mm. They should explain to the fans what their, what their plans are for the future, where it's going right, where it's going wrong. They have a duty of care to the fans. It is the fans' football club. They might not own it, but the spirit and the magic and the core energy of every football club belongs to fans. Not, not, not owners. And I know that as a, you know, I owned Carlisle United. I had the good, the bad, and the ugly there. We had five brilliant years, uh, and if you're not getting it right, you've got to go. Uh, and yes, we were more self-aware in my time, certainly in the early years, than the club had ever done. We had a great model. It went pear-shaped because I fell out with the media, and um, and I left. But I left for the right reasons, because when your time is up in a football club, you've got to go. My time was up at Carlisle, and I think the Glazers' time has been up a long time. Uh, I've nothing against the Glazers. I've never met them. I don't know them. I'm sure they're very decent people. They're clearly very shrewd business people. There's no doubt about that. But look, come on. They've got to be more open and transparent with the fans. They've got to reveal what their plans are. Are they going to sell it? Will they ever sell it? You've got to be fair to the Glaziers in the sense that they have sanctioned £1 billion worth of player acquisitions in the last seven years. Of course, it's not their money. It was the club's money. Hmm. That's the difference. At least the Chelsea chairman and owners put 500 million quid of his own money into Chelsea. Tottenham Hotspur, 400 million plus of their own money into Tottenham. And to be fair, these are statistics which are undeniable. So 
you know, the glaziers have got some questions that need answering. Um, I could give them a blueprint that would transform Manchester United yet again. But look, they're never going to contact Michael Knight. They wouldn't entertain me, uh, although I was invited by my last board colleagues to always have a place at Old Trafford and be welcome there. I remember Bobby Charlton, God bless him, giving a little eulogy for me when I left. Bobby and I were just just professional friends. We were never close. Uh, and Bobby was always appalled at my antics on the first day because uh, Bobby's Bobby. God love the man. One of our great, great, iconic players of all time. Mm. But you've got to have fan representation. As long as the fans are sensible and intelligent enough to realise they are part of a collegiate group of people that are managing an institution for the best uh, of its own interests and that means the club's interests for its patrons who are the fans and there are many fans who are capable of making a very very important and valuable contribution to their football club so you should always have two or three on every single boardroom up and down the country and ex-players you know that was my my other point. Um, look, sadly, Wayne, no one is probably going to be knocking on my door to uh, look at my my blueprint. I'll probably end up selling it to someone in China or giving giving it to them for an opportunity to to get involved and say, "I this is what I can do for your football club." Um, I still believe I can. I I, I could transform some football clubs. Um, and take them where they should be. Uh, and yes, Manchester United, greatest football club in the world, they're massively underachieving. Where, where are they? They're seventh, are they, in the table? On All right, they're only five points behind the leaders, but five points might as well, might as well be 50. They've had a good spell. You know, they had, went, what, four or five games unbeaten recently. They're out of Europe, so you're going to struggle in the window to attract your top, top players, unless you give them unbelievable financial packages because mm. a footballer will always put money first I can tell you that from my personal experience at any level the footballer will always put his pay packet first there are very few that don't um, so they're out of Europe so you know your Sancho's and your other top targets they're going to think mm, do I want to go to club they're not in Europe for the rest of the season uh, mm, you know they're struggling they're underachieving again. They're almost back to where they were in 89. They need a Michael Knighton or someone of his ilk to sort it out. And I hope they find it, Wayne, before it's too late and they slip even further away. I've got to say I completely agree, although I would add the caveat that I would attach Michael Knighton to a new vehicle to come in and take over the club rather than give the ideas to the Glazers because you give them more opportunity to pilfer from the club um, and, and sort of seek the commercial advantage over it that um, they will take it for their own gain and not for the club's gain I've got to say what a fascinating interview with uh, Michael Knighton and I will say this that if he turned up tomorrow as part of a vehicle that was taking over Manchester United and was doing some kick-ups into the Stretford end let's say the fans are there 
they were probably wanting to turn out um, for the team, considering we're that bad at the moment. Um, yeah, but that's it for this interview with Michael Knight, and I'm so thankful for his time. I hope it was interesting, as interesting for you listening as it was for me uh, talking to Michael. Uh, absolutely fascinating conversation, and I'm, I, like I said earlier, I really do believe that... Um, I believe in what he's saying about the the idea of um, a positive move forward um, that it can be done but like I said um, without the Glazers um, I'd be more interested to uh, more inclined to see what um, idea he had Um, just fascinating thank you so much for listening guys and I'll be back soon away days are great but there's nothing quite like playing at home the same goes for McDonald's Maximize your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus serving times, delivery fee, and terms apply. See McDonald's.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport, powered by fans.